When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Joyce Vance, Jill Wine-Banks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Kimberly Atkins' store is away this week, but she'll be back with us next week. Last week, we told you about our hashtag Sisters-in-Law live tour, and the response has been amazing. We've heard from literally thousands of you. Um, And so if you haven't had a chance to tell us where you would like to see us live, please go to the link on our show notes and fill out the form. Um, We want to be where our listeners are and we want to find you where we're likely to have, uh, you know, the biggest turnout. So please uh, fill out the form and let us know where you would like to see us. You can also enter a drawing to win some hashtag sisters-in-law merch uh, if you complete our form and we will announce the winners next week. So on Chicago, Chicago, (laughs) (laughs) lots of good cities in the mix. All right. Well, today we're going to be talking about the January 6th hearings, um, what what we heard uh, on the first night of the hearings and what we anticipate is yet to come. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Uh, but first, before we get into it, I just, um, you know, Jill, I can't help but think there are so many parallels between what we're hearing and with the January 6th hearings and Watergate, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, right? And I think there are some events coming up that you are participating in to uh, commemorate that 50th anniversary. Can you tell us about them? Absolutely. It's amazing to me that it's 50 years, and this is the anniversary of the break-in. My trial team has always celebrated our anniversaries on the night of the Saturday Night Massacre, which we all survived in the end. But this year, the Senate, because it's 50 years, the Senate staff has put together a reunion for the Senate staffers, the House staffers, and members, of course, as well, the Judge Sirica staff, the prosecution staff, and some of the reporters who covered Watergate. And so it's going to be a great reunion, and they're going to have some panels, and I am lucky enough to be on one of the panels. I'm moderating a panel. And I think the discussions will be really, really terrific. And the best part of it is that Kim and you, Barb, are going to be in Washington. Kim, of course, is always there, but you're going to be visiting. Um, And so you're going to be able to join me at this event. And we're hoping that Joyce can change her schedule so that she can be with us. And it would be the first time the four of us are all together in person, which would be an incredible thing. And I might have to change my pin that I was planning Mm -hmm. to wear for the event to our sisters-in-law merch pin as... (laughs) an honor if we are all together. So Joyce, it's up to you what pin I wear. If you're there, I'm wearing my sisters-in-law pin, which I hope all of our listeners have also purchased and will identify themselves as our our friends and fans. Okay, you've convinced me. I'm going to go look for flights as soon as we finish taping today. That's just too good of an invite Yay, to resist. That would be so... And I, and I have to say just one other thing, which is 
the room it's in is the room where John Dean testified. It's the room where all of the testimony was. Um, I was with John Dean last night for an event um, at the University Club in Chicago sponsored by uh, Thompson Hine, a law firm that's in Chicago now, but an Ohio firm. And I mean, it was just an extraordinary event to have the prosecutor and the chief witness having this conversation was just extraordinary and fun and fabulous. Let's start our discussion about the January 6th hearings that happened on Thursday night with a discussion about the opening statements. And we we'll, can talk a little bit about where the committee is going and do we think it's going to work. Barb, can you describe the purpose of opening statements? Because that's what was a large part of Thursday night's hearing, both in a trial and whether that's the same purpose in this event. Yeah, you know, an opening statement is used in a, a, a trial. It is kind of a roadmap for what the prosecutor and the defense attorney expect that the evidence will show. And I think it's important because it gives the jury or the audience, whoever it may be, some context for where things are going. Um, it is uh, so that you're not listening to each witness kind of in isolation, wondering how does this fit into anything? Because each witness alone is just going to say a few little things and uh, it might be hard for a jury to otherwise understand why are these facts important. And so that opening statement can kind of outline what the big picture is so that as the jury is listening to those individual pieces of testimony, they can kind of see where they fit into the bigger picture. So that's the purpose of it. And I also think it's the prosecutor's first opportunity to make a first impression about the strength of the evidence. And so that's very important too. Uh, you know, I think we all form some judgments at, at first impression. And so you want to hear things that sound compelling, like, wow, you know, if they can actually follow through and provide that evidence, that sounds pretty, uh, pretty persuasive. So I think you want to do that too. Um, and I, th I think that's the goal here too. It is a slightly different process here. This is not um, uh, a criminal trial. At the end of it, they're not going to be asking for, uh, you know, proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, instead, I think their goal here is to help the American public understand exactly what happened here um, and maybe secondarily to enact any legislation that might need to uh, be put in place to fill some of these gaps. And then I suppose to some extent trying to persuade the Justice Department that there is an important um, criminal case here that they ought to bring. And so, um, you know, I think they did an effective job of doing that last night. And, and who do you think their main target audience was last night? So a lot of people have been asking, so was this an audience of one, Merrick Garland? Is that who is the real audience here? And I think, no, I don't think that's the answer. He has said to his credit that he's going to watch as many of the hearings and as much of it as he can, which I think is good because they can get leads from there and, and hear more about the evidence. So I think they'll want to do that. But I think the Justice Department will conduct its own investigation independently. They've asked for all the transcripts from the committee. Um, and they're, you know, their job's a little bit different. They have to look at specific statutes to determine whether the elements of those statutes were violated and the, whether they can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. I think instead the real audience here is the American people. Um, no doubt in this country we have people who are already convinced that Donald Trump committed crimes and should have been in prison 
a year, a year ago. I think they're probably also a segment of the American people who will never believe that Trump has ever done anything wrong. You know, the group who uh, he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and w- would still vote for him. So there's that group. But then I think there's a huge swath in between of just reasonable, moderate Americans who, you know, because they're busy with their lives and their work and other things, have not paid close enough attention to what's going on uh, with this investigation. And I think for the first time may have been really um, uh, amazed at what they heard last night. So I think that is um, the important piece of, uh, of, of the audience here is the American people, uh, because I think they need to be uh, forewarned so that they can be forearmed against any kind of attack like this that might occur in the future. I completely agree with you. I think we have to redefine success. I mean, success during Watergate was one thing. I think here the success means that the committee produces sufficient evidence to set the record straight for history, to build support for corrective legislation, and to persuade that swath of people, those undecided voters, that this is the truth and that they need to vote based on it. And to motivate even those who are already convinced that this is the truth, to vote in numbers sufficient to make sure that we don't ever run into this again. And that goes down to not just uh, the presidential vote, but to secretaries of state and all state legislatures, which are passing laws that could take your vote away. Uh, It's not to get to Fox viewers. There's no, uh, first of all, Fox isn't even broadcasting it, but even if they did, I think you've identified that category of people who certainly believes the truth. And so we're, you know, I'm hoping that the committee will succeed. And Joyce, let's talk about the specific openings, not the sort of general purpose, but let me start with the Thompson opening and talk about what his key points were and whether it was effective and why or why not. So, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys were doing this. I was actually holding my breath um, I think for a couple of hours before they started. I, I just, you know, y- you guys know how these things can go. You can get into a congressional hearing in which every committee member makes an opening statement and it sounds more like they're taping ads for their next election um, than they are concerned about the substantive topic. It was clear, I'm going to say about 30 seconds in to Representative Thompson's opening statement that that was not going to go on here. It was very clear that this was not about political theater. It was about substance. I thought he did some things early on before he got into the substantive arguments that he was making that were very effective. He talked about how this was important, not for everybody. You know, he acknowledged the gorilla in the room, right? This isn't just about Democrats and Republicans. This is about the country. It's a little bit trite, but it needed to be said And he said it, I thought, in a really effective manner. I'll tell you, one of my friends who's a very conservative lawyer in Mississippi um, and not the kind of person who was inclined to watch this couldn't even um, bring themselves to say anything bad about Benny Thompson. They just said, he has such a beautiful voice. It's compelling. You know, you always want to listen to him when he's speaking. 
And I think that that's what happened here. So, so this is where he focused. He focused on this notion that Trump had knowingly spread claims about election fraud that the people closest to him knew were false, that he tried to use apparatus of government, he tried to use the courts to perpetuate um, his own rule over the country, because that's, I think, what he was contemplating, ruling the country. And then when everything failed, he sat back and permitted the attack to proceed uninterrupted. And where he honed, you'll recall that it was uh, Benny Thompson, who in his opening, who played the first video clips for us. And this was this really discordant clip of Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, who has put himself out as this sort of grandfatherly conservative um, figure, using terrible language to, in essence, demean the former president of the United States. And so, you know, he's being asked, I think, by Tim Hafey, Barb's and my former colleague, who's um, heading up the committee staff, but he's he's asked questions about, um, well, what did you tell the president about his claims of fraud? And he says, it was bull um, and, and this was a very powerful, I think, piece in Thompson's opening. Liz Cheney ranged a lot further. I know we're going to talk about her in a minute. But Thompson was much more constrained and focused, and I thought it worked really well. And, you know, I was moved by a lot of it that was his references to the Civil War, to protecting the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And he really emphasized the domestic. And his references to Abe Lincoln uh, and how Lincoln had thought he was going to lose re-election and had written... Uh, a letter which he had all of his cabinet sign, basically saying that they would accept and help in the transfer of power. And I, for some reason, that really moved me. But also, he did stress that this threat to the will of the people ruling our country is not over. Um, but then I wondered, he did promise never-before-seen video. And I want to ask you, Joyce, if you think he overpromised on the unseen footage, or am I in a minority? Because I know on Twitter I asked, and most of my responses thought it was terrific. I felt like it was probably definitely never before seen. It was literally true, but misleading because it looked like all the other video I'd seen. Did you think that it was overpromised? I think your point is well taken. This committee has to be very, very careful. They have to under-promise and over-deliver. Every prosecutor knows that, and this committee has to live and die by those same rules. And so, you know, when you say never before seen, that does raise expectations. I actually didn't have a, a bad reaction to this at all. I um, And I had wondered if they would do this successfully, and I thought they did. I remember how horrified everybody was on January 6th. I know that we all do, right? In that moment, it was so horrifying, and it was almost one of those moments where everything else stops and drops away, and conversations that you had with neighbors and friends. That was the only thing, really, that it was about for that space there. And then we moved past it, and now it's just like another tourist day at the Capitol, right? And so playing this new footage, this, I guess it was about a 10-minute montage that they put together was very, very important to reminding people of what the moment was like. So uh, although I think that your um, concern, Jill, is one that I hope that someone on the committee is listening to right now and that they'll take it into consideration for a few sessions, I think this worked out okay. 
Good. So let's move to Cheney's opening. Um, I thought Representative Cheney made some very key points and was very effective. And Barb, can you tell us what some of her key points were and how you thought it was in terms of effectiveness and could it have been any better? Yeah, I thought she was very effective. Um, I think that one of the things that makes her so effective is the fact that she is this stalwart member of the Republican establishment. You know, her father was Dick Cheney. She has been uh, a, a staunch Republican. She's extremely conservative. And so I think in many ways uh, that gave her some instant credibility, maybe different from um, from others. You know, there's one thing about what she did and Benny Thompson that I think I would have done a little bit differently. You know, I, I said A plus, I think overall their presentation was really quite good and quite compelling. I don't know about you guys, but when I did opening statements, what used to drive me crazy and I would watch some of our prosecutors from time to time is they'd have this really long wind up before they really got into it. You know, my name is X, I'm a prosecutor, our constitution requires yada, yada. Uh, what I say is not evidence, you know, and like was, by the time you actually get into it, you've been talking, you know, about these principles of justice, et cetera, for a really long time. And you kind of lose them. Like you've got, I remember being taught at uh, one of these trial practice things that you've got about 30 seconds to capture their attention. Um, and if you don't, you've kind of missed it. And so all of the stuff, you know, the lecturing, the preaching, the putting it in historical context, all that sort of stuff, I would have saved that for a little bit in. I would have started, bam, with the evidence, um, you know, show, showing the videos and talking about what the evidence is. And then, as I did in opening statements as a, as a prosecutor, you know, you pause after you've kind of laid out the big picture and you say, now let me introduce myself and my colleagues here. Here's who we are. Here's our job. Here's why we're here. But you start with the pow, you know, right in the kisser. Like um, one example I remember in one of these courses was um, – the, the TV series Breaking Bad, which opened with the very first thing, not with, now this is Walter and he's a high school teacher and he teaches chemistry and he's about to encounter some, some challenges in his life. Instead, it begins where he's racing across the desert in an RV and he's being chased and like, you don't know why, right? And then you kind of fill in the backstory of later, right? With some of the, the details leading up to it. So that's just one, you know, probably nitpicky thing that both of them started with the, I'm a member of Congress and I'm going to preach to you you why this was so bad. Rah, rah, rah. You know, I'd rather like start with the evidence. Um, but she did say some things in that part that were powerful. She did lay out, uh, I think, what we were go going to hear last night, as well as what we might expect to see in the upcoming hearings. So in that way, she did provide that roadmap and the context uh, for what uh, the evidence is going to show. I thought that was important. And then she did say one thing that I thought was really compelling, which was um, the day will come when uh, Donald Trump is gone. Uh, this, this to my to my Republican colleagues in Congress. The day will come when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Ooh, I thought that was um, a really powerful moment. So uh, I, I, I thought overall really quite good. Um, and I, I thought she did what a good opening statement is intended to do, which is to lay out that roadmap of the evidence. And I thought that her very alliance with the Republican Party gives her credibility uh, because people won't be able to say about her that this is simply politically motivated. I agree about that one line. That will be one of those that will resonate for many years and will become symbolic of these hearings. But I do agree with you um, that I would have started differently. Um, I think, in general, there was too much focus on the violence of January 6th. And what this hearing has to be about, in my mind, 
is the entire coup plot. It's everything. It's not January 6th is one element of what they planned. And there's no question they laid out knowledge, intent, plan. That was clearly there. But And they do mention, and in future hearings, we will be covering these other elements, the Eastman memos, etc., uh, the fake elector slates. But I would have spent more time on those things, not completely, you can't do it all in one night, but I would have fleshed those out and made it more important. And I would have started with the whole context and then moved to the January 6th violence. So that's one difference I would have had. But um, I, I wish that Kim were here with us today because she has all the political answers. Um, but let me ask both of you, what do you think about the politics of this for Representative Cheney? Um, she's uh, apparently trailing in her re-election bid, her leading GOP primary rival by 28 to 56. I mean, that's a huge, huge percentage differential. And um, so I don't know, do you want to predict the outcome, what it means for her? Will she get the nomination uh, to even run again? Well, I was going to go out on a on a political limb here um, and say, I think, you know, Liz Cheney is playing a long game here. I don't think she wants to be a part of the Trumpist party, but she's got some years left in her career. And I think she envisions a Republican party that can turn itself around. And that's the party she wants to lead. I think that's the claim that she's staking in these hearings. And I don't mean to say that I think she's, you know, I don't mean that to be a cynical political statement. I think that that's literally her conviction and her courage that she's willing to do that. She's not like these other folks who are just concerned about getting reelected. That said, Wyoming is a little bit of a Cheney preserve. I wouldn't write Liz Cheney out. I suspect that she's got a couple of uh, tricks up her sleeve. She's a fine politician. She knows how the game is played, and I would be stunned if she didn't come out of the primary. Excellent. And, and you know, I, I would add, I don't know, and I think she doesn't care. I think she cares more about um, this moment in history than preserving her own political hide, which, my gosh, why aren't there more of them like that? Isn't it? It's so disappointing that we don't have more people in politics who care about serving our country and are so sing singularly focused on their own careers. And I think she's willing to sacrifice her career if that's what it takes. You know, if if people are going to vote her out of office because she did what she thought was the right thing to protect our democracy, then shame on them and good for her. But like Joyce, I think she may not be able to be elected to Congress in her state of Wyoming, but I'll bet you down the road she could be elected president uh, by the entire country. So um, I think that, you know, when you do the right thing, things tend to work out for you. I have to say I agree with everything you said, except that her politics is so conservative that I'm not sure that the whole country will support her for president. But I think she could be a very credible Republican candidate for mm -hmm. the presidency. And let's just take one more part of the opening night, which is, you know, it's sort of part of the overall start. Um, and Barb, you've already given it a grade. Joyce, do you want to say how you thought overall the opening night was? I thought it was great. It was substantive. It was compelling. Um, it even had prosecutorial merit. You know, there was this layout of the evidence. They told us what the evidence was like, and they talked about the confidence 
that they had in the evidence. So all in all, I think that this was a good night for the Democrats, but I'm going to caveat it this way. The real problem isn't how the people who saw um, the hearing reacted. The real problem is the people who aren't watching the hearing. And that's something that I'm not sure that they've fully gamed out and addressed. I'm not sure it can be gamed out and addressed. Perhaps that's something that all of our listeners can do. You know, if, if like me, you live in a conservative place and have conservative friends, maybe you can convince a couple of them to watch Summer All. Yesterday in the first January 6th committee hearing, there were opening statements, but there were also witness presentations. We heard from the first two witnesses, and I'm interested in hearing your impressions. So just let's go ahead and jump straight in. Jill, the first of the two witnesses yesterday was Capitol Police Officer Carolyn Edwards. Why do you think she was the first witness the committee chose to put on? So, well, Keeping in mind my comments about I wouldn't have started with the January 6th violence if it were me planning the hearings, but I thought she was an extremely effective witness on that because it was very real and very personal. One of the most moving scenes to me, most compelling, was seeing her holding the bike racks to prevent the advance of hundreds of violent mob people, obviously holding two of them that were adjacent, impossible to hold back, and then seeing the result with her having hit her head on the stairs and on the railing and lying sprawled. It looked like she had broken a leg or was and she was, in fact, unconscious for a while. Seeing her in that prone position really brought home the, the violence and hearing her description of the blood and that she was slipping in the blood of other people and how she were, got up and despite her injury, gave aid to some of the other injured officers and then rejoined trying to hold the line and fell back again. I thought it was very effective. I was stunned when one of my favorite neighbors texted me that she thought she was so boring she couldn't stand it. I, I can't even fathom wow that point of view. I really, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's that shocking to me. I thought, I, I mean, I was very touched by her story, even knowing what was coming. I thought it was really moving. I also think that her story as a um, not first generation law enforcement person, she told the story of her grandfather fighting in Korea as a Marine. And it just, put in, in context the service, her service to the country, but the service of her family and the service of all of the other Capitol Police and D.C. Police who were there and injured on that day. And so I thought she was a great first witness. I also think that live witnesses are generally way more impactful than any recording. And I have tweeted that before, but I have to say that some of the recorded testimony that was shown, I thought that the uh, Capitol investigator was really powerful, and that was recorded. And of course, Bill Barr, I thought, was very effective, even though it was powerful. And certainly Ivanka Trump was effective, even though it was recorded. So I, I think the live witnesses must continue, and I hope that they will focus more and more on live witnesses. But 
they have done a good job with the recordings too. Yeah, you know, I have a thought about that. It seems to me that they're taking the hostile witnesses and showing excerpts of their testimony on videotape and then taking more friendly witnesses, maybe not completely friendly, because I think the next witness we're going to talk about wasn't in that category, but at least the people that they know aren't going to want to fight them on key points. Um, I'm not sure if that holds up right after we saw Jared and Ivanka and have now seen the former president distance himself from his daughter, which I think is pretty shocking. I don't know if y'all saw, but there was this, I I don't know what it's called Mm -hmm. on this new social media platform that he's on. He had, um, you know, sent out something saying Ivanka was checked out, which is about as close to criticizing her as he comes. But I think you don't, you legitimately don't want to put up hostile witnesses in a hearing like this because you don't want it to be about arguing with the witness. You want it to be about telling the story. I agree with you, but at least one of the witnesses in that category has already protested that his video clip was taken out of context. Now, I read what he said about the context, and that's what Bill Barr said, in my opinion. It it (laughs) wasn't really taken. I I, I was, by the way, I was totally stunned when <laughs> MSNBC actually didn't bleep out bull**t. And I, I didn't repeat it when I did a television hit because I was worried about that. But I, anyway, that, you know, there is a witness who's saying, you misrepresented because you didn't have me live. You did a clip. So there is that risk. And that's what the Republicans will use. That's what Fox News is going to cover. Ah, they cheated. They took it out of context. You know, I was thinking about that, and I'm not sure it plays all that bad, because for one thing, the clip is out there, right? Nobody really cares what these folks say once they've seen the clip. And then, of course, the committee's ultimately going to release the full thing. So it's easy for the committee to say, no, you know, we didn't misrepresent. And by the way, here's the whole, you know, hour or two hours long of testimony. Go look at the whole thing, and there's no misrepresentation. And that's maybe a way of convincing people to see a little bit more of the testimony than they would otherwise. But maybe we'll leave that one to the side for now and see how that plays out as we get further into the hearings. I think it's an interesting point. Um, Barb, our second witness, documentary filmmaker Nick Quested, what was the committee trying to do here and do you think it worked? Yeah, well, he was used as kind of the authenticator for his video. And, um, you know, a little pro tip to both of you. Next time you're planning an insurrection, don't invite (laughs) along a um, documentary uh, filmmaker to um, to film it all because it could be evidence used against you later. Um, But, you know, he wasn't. I don't think he was too happy to be there. I know you said something like they used clips Mm -hmm. of the hostile witnesses and invited the friendlier witnesses to be there in person. He was kind of a neutral, right? He even made a point of saying he was there under subpoena. So I don't know that he loved being there. He got clearly, you know, he got paid by the Proud Boys. He signed a contract with them to produce this documentary that they thought, I think, was, you know, documenting history uh, when they took back their country or whatever their fantasy was about what this really was. Um, But nonetheless, because he was there, he was an eyewitness and he had videotape of it that he could show people. And because he was there, he was able to authenticate and describe what it was we were all seeing as he showed the video, I thought was really quite compelling. And a couple of things there, you know, all all of us, and I'm sure most of our listeners have paid pretty close attention to the facts that has, have unfolded about January 6th. I've read those indictments of both of the groups, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, 
about conspiracy, seditious conspiracy, and there's a lot of detail in there, but I still learned some new things that I didn't know before. And I thought Nick Quested was able to, um, to, to show them. One is, I didn't realize this, but there were, he said between 250 to 300 Proud Boys there. And he did not expect there to be that large of a number. I didn't either because the defendants in the indictment are just a handful. And so, you know, I figured there were a few more than the ones who were indicted, who are just, you know, kind of along for the ride and weren't the organizers and planners. But he said 250 to 300 and he knew because they were all wearing um, matching orange caps and he had pictures of them, you know, gathering. In addition, there were these Oath Keepers. We had heard previously about their meeting the night before in this parking garage where they kind of coordinated, you know, what it was they were going to do. So that was all interesting. Um, And I imagine, I don't know what the real number of Oath Keepers is either. You know, was that more like a 250 to 300? The other thing that I... I think was probably in those indictments, but had, I had not just really appreciated before was this fact that was brought out in the questioning. And that is that um, at about 10 a.m., the Proud Boys went down to the Capitol. And Nick Quested said he was surprised because he thought they were there to film this you know, rally with Trump and their role in that. And instead, they didn't go to the rally. They went straight to the Capitol at about 10 a.m. And it wasn't until noon when Trump made a speech and said, we're going to march to the Capitol that the rest of the group came down. And so it seems that what they are suggesting is that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, and, and talked about the surveillance of the Capitol and figuring out the best points to breach it, um, you know, that their job was to first break down the doors and then to let the, um, you know, the, 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 the big fans and the red caps who just showed up to be able to walk right in and follow their way in and create such a scene of chaos and such havoc that they would have to evacuate the building and wouldn't be able to certify the vote. I thought that was really interesting. One thing I will be listening for in the upcoming hearings is whether there is any evidence or testimony that links those two events. Was this just a happy coincidence or was there a plan between Trump's team and the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers to go do this in advance of the Trump speech saying, let's march down to the Capitol. We know that three of these men who were charged with seditious conspiracy have entered guilty pleas and agreed to cooperate, including one man named Joshua James, who was seen and videotaped on January 5th and 6th with Roger Stone, a close Trump associate who was part of that whole Willard Hotel war room group that was trying to figure out you know, the options to keep Trump in office. So what I'm really curious to hear is, was there a directive between that group and these militia guys to go, you know, knock down the doors? And and I'll be looking for that in the in the hearings to come. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And like you, I was very taken by that timing evidence. I hadn't focused on it before. But this notion that they've come to Washington to listen to Trump speak get sort of blown out of the water when you realize that they're leaving before he's really into the speech and heading on to the Capitol. Um, I bet you're right that we'll hear more in that area. Something that fascinates me is that DOJ has two separate conspiracy indictments right now for seditious conspiracy, one for the Oath Keepers, one for the Proud Boys. And typically when you've got one conspiracy, you indict everybody who's in that conspiracy altogether. When you've got separate conspiracies, you have to use separate indictments. Otherwise, you can be subject to a legal challenge and have your case dismissed. So do you think that this is all that DOJ has, two separate conspiracies? 
Or do you think ultimately we'll hear the evidence that brings the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys together? I'm thinking about um, the fact that Quested uh, was present for, but didn't really discuss in, in any detail, this meeting between the leader of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Do you think that there's more to come in that vein? Yeah, I, I have to think that the Justice Department is at least looking at more to come. Um, you know, I don't know whether they'll find it. But um, as Merrick Garland explained on January 5th, when he gave that speech about how the Justice Department does its work, um, it builds starting with the low-hanging fruit. That's not his term. But, you know, the obvious case that appears in front of you, in this case, it's probably the people who just, you know, showed up, trespassed, um, entered the Capitol when they shouldn't have. That's the low-hanging fruit here. And you work your way up. You get cooperators, you get their phones, you see who they're talking to, and you work it up from there. And so we've got now these two discrete indictments for seditious conspiracy. But if they can be linked together, that's all a conspiracy is, an agreement to violate the law. And so if the leaders of these two groups got together under the garage that night and said, yeah, we're going to strike too. Yeah, we're in, you know, we're going to do this tomorrow at this coordinated time. See you there. That could be enough to tie them together. And then, you know, of course your investigation doesn't end there. You say, well, why were you both here? Did anyone ask you to be here? How did you get your money to be here? How did you, there's you know evidence that they had stashed weapons outside of Washington, DC. How did you buy those weapons? How did you communicate? How did you recruit? Um, and continuing to take it, you know, to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. So maybe this is where it ends. Maybe it goes all the way up to the war room at the Willard Hotel. Maybe it goes all the way up to the Oval Office. So that's how you investigate by getting cooperators to tell you what happened, by looking at their communications and their texts and their emails and their bank records to try to make these links um, to try to keep going and, and take it to the highest level that exists. So, Jill, Barb makes a fair point about taking it to the highest level and into the White House. The seditious conspiracy charge, though, that's being used for the militia groups requires proof that a defendant intended the use of force. My sense right now is that that could be hard to tag Trump with, at least based on what we've heard publicly. I'm not sure that I've heard evidence, and, and you may disagree, and if so, I'm interested in hearing it, but I've not heard evidence that Trump was directly in a proof beyond a reasonable doubt sense directing people to use force. So it might end up that he can't be charged with participating in seditious conspiracies that the militia groups were, were plotting, even though there may be other charges against him. Do you think the failure to charge him with seditious conspiracy would somehow be fatal to this whole effort? I certainly do not. I, I also, let me address your, your first question, which I think that there are circumstantial pieces of evidence that could be developed and probably are being looked at by people who have much more insight into this than you and I do, um, that link Donald Trump to the outcome, which was violence. And it's even things like they stressed his uh, tweet, which followed his meeting with Sidney Powell and um, uh, Michael Flynn and I think Rudy Giuliani, uh, you know, come, it will be wild, and followed up by Bannon doing the same sort of thing. That's encouraging it. They also showed, I, I'm not sure if I saw this separately, maybe not during the hearings, that the, uh, the Proud Boys used this as a recruitment when he said, stand down, stand by. And their membership tripled, tripled. So you can't say that you built up the audience or the, the 
the violent people and not take responsibility for having been a recruiting tool. And was that his intent to build up the Proud Boys? I don't know, but it's certainly something worth looking at. But there are a lot of other statutes besides seditious conspiracy. I'd be looking at obstruction of an official proceeding. I'd be looking at a conspiracy to defraud. I would also even rely on a general conspiracy, which is once you join a conspiracy, you don't have to have participated in every aspect of it. If, you know, it's a murder committed while you're robbing a bank and you're the getaway driver, you didn't know anybody was going to shoot anybody. You didn't intend that to happen, but it did. And you're part of the overall conspiracy to rob the bank. You're responsible for the killing. And so maybe we don't need to have the specific intent proof that he intended this to happen, that it was enough that he was part of the conspiracy. Um, But that's a trickier legal question. Well, Thursday night was just the first of eight planned hearings. There are going to be seven in the month of June, and then the eighth, a recap in September. And so on Thursday, we heard about mostly the physical attack on the Capitol on January 6th. But according to Liz Cheney's opening statement, we're going to hear about seven different schemes, seven, count them, seven, over the coming sessions. Joyce, what do you think we can expect to hear in those uh, upcoming hearings? Well, I think that we can take Liz Cheney at her word based on what we're starting to hear about upcoming sessions, and we'll hear those seven schemes get laid out, beginning with this Monday night when we'll hear about the first of those, which is the perpetration of the big lie. And then I think they'll move on in the remainder of these sessions. I'm not precisely certain how they're going to align all of these different sorts of uh, fraudulent schemes that she's alleging. But we'll hear, for instance, about this effort to uh, pervert the Justice Department by replacing the acting attorney general with Jeffrey Clark, this individual who was a DOJ appointee who was willing to push fake election claims on Trump's behalf. We'll hear about the scheme to pressure Vice President Pence to refuse to certify the count. I think that'll be front and center. We'll hear about efforts to pressure state election officials and state legislators to get them to change election results in their states. This is, for instance, the Brad Raffensperger story, the Georgia Secretary of State. We'll hear his live testimony, and even though most of us have heard the audio tape of his phone call with the former president, I suspect his testimony will be very compelling. Um, We'll hear about folks who instructed Republicans in multiple states to create false slates of electors and then to send those to Congress and the National Archives. That's something we've talked about a lot on the podcast because there's the possibility here of separate types of fraud crimes, both the creation of the slates of electors, but also making false statements to the government by making submissions to Congress and the archives. A lot of interesting opportunities there. We'll hear about the president summoning and assembling the violent mob to Washington. The committee tells us that they will take that directly to Trump, including his direction to them, that they should march on the Capitol. That was sort of the focus that we heard about last night, the violence at the Capitol. Still to come, I think we'll hear more about Trump's role in directing that march. Um, And then finally, the notion that as the violence was underway, 
Trump ignored all pleas for assistance, failed to take steps to protect the Capitol and stop the violence. And it's particularly important that we hear from leaders at the Pentagon who will, for instance, say that although they received no phone calls from the former president, they did receive orders from Mike Pence. We heard a lot about that last night. I thought it was presented in a newish sort of way, this notion that Trump was disengaged and didn't want to do anything to protect anyone. And again, that's important, not necessarily because uh, any of those things form criminal charges, although in my mind, some of them clearly warrant investigation, but also because they'll help Congress advance other important tasks here. And one of those is evaluating whether or not this president honored his oath of office, right? Like all federal elected officials, he took an oath to uphold the Constitution and protect the country. Many of these claims go to establishing that he violated that oath. Yeah. And I think one thing in particular that um, we heard last night was, you know, it wasn't just that he was, you know, busy doing other things and couldn't focus. He was he was watching. He just chose not to do things when he was asked to do them. And when um, he heard words to the effect of, you know, they're saying hang Mike Pence, he said, well, maybe they've got it right. He deserves it. Wow. It was um, chilling. That's pretty right? shocking. So, yeah. Yeah. So I I think when we get to that hearing day, that's going to be pretty interesting. Jill, I want to pick up on one of the things that that Joyce just mentioned here. Coming up next week, um, one of the days is going to be, it sounds like DOJ day, where we're going to hear about some of the things that happened there, including uh, testimony from the then acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen. What do you expect him to testify about? I think he will for sure talk about the uh, plan to replace him with a person who was willing to do Trump's bidding, and that is Clark, who uh, another member of Congress had suggested replace Rosen. Rosen was saying there is no fraud, and I'm not signing a letter that says that. I'm not telling U.S. attorneys to investigate fraud that doesn't exist. And um, I'm not saying that the Department of Justice is looking at it when we aren't because there is none. And so Donald Trump was very unhappy with that and was threatening to fire him and replace him with Clark, who was quite willing to do that. So I think that'll be a very uh, powerful piece of testimony. It goes back to the time of, you know, Watergate, which did try to subvert the Department of Justice. It had my boss at the time, Henry Peterson, helping John Dean by giving him all the information. It had, um, you know, all of the other things that were happening because Mitchell had been the attorney general while he was doing it. So seeing the department subverted, seeing someone stand up to the president and say, no, I won't do that, as, for example, Elliot Richardson did, I'm not going to do your bidding. He got fired. Uh, the de- then acting substitute for him, Ruckelshaus, said, I won't do it either, and he got fired. And it was the Solicitor General, who was then the third in command, said, I'll do it. And so he became the acting, and he fired Archibald Cox. So I think this will be very uh, reminiscent of 50 years ago, but it will also be very au courant. And I think that'll be the, the main thing. But there will also be, I hope, testimony from him about the fact that they did investigate and that they found no evidence. And so he can live repeat what we heard from Bill Barr in recordings, that it was BS that there was any fraud. 
That was a great answer, Jill, though. I had to look up Oh, Courant. And uh, don't let, ever let anyone accuse you of not being an elitist, Jill Weinman. Aware of what is going on, well-informed. They were oh Courant with the literary scene. You were very oh Courant with this, uh, this topic. Yeah, I think I'm really looking forward to this group of Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue and Stephen Donahue. Engel, who were these assistant attorneys general, de- de- deputy attorney general, acting attorney general, uh, at the time, because they really got into this showdown where, uh, you know, they wanted to, Trump wanted to replace Jeffrey Rosen with Jeffrey Clark, who had written this letter that he wanted to send out to these swing states. He drafted it for jo- uh, Georgia as proof of concept that would say, we have found irregularities, which was a lie. And we are suggesting you might want to consider convening your legislatures for the purpose of selecting alternate electors. Like, wow. And last night they did play just a little clip from Richard Donahue, the acting deputy attorney general, who said, you're asking us to interfere with an election. I mean, that's just not what the department does. So I am really interested in hearing more about that. And I think that's what we'll we'll hear. And they they stood as a group. So it's important to point out, I mean, you asked about Rosen, but um, it was a group that said, we're all going to quit. And we also have a lot of other people who are going to quit if you do this. If if you appoint Clark, we're, we're going to go public with this. So, you know, again, it shows how close we came to losing our democracy, that it took people, you mentioned Raffsenberger uh, and Clark and Donahue and, Ang- I mean, it took individuals to stand up to the president and say, we're not committing crimes, as opposed to those who did it. And so we have to be grateful for those people. Yeah. So we'll look forward to hearing about that next week. Joyce, what do you suppose is the end game here? If you're Liz Cheney and Benny Thompson and you're thinking about what are our main objectives here, or Tim Hafey, our former colleague who is the counsel to the committee, um, is it to persuade DOJ to file charges? Is it to persuade voters? Is it to enact legislation? Is it simply an accounting for history? What do you think at the end of the day is, is their goal? I hope that it's B, C, and D, but maybe not so much A. Um, persuading voters, absolutely. The specter of having Donald Trump return to office is, is a really horrible one. Voters need to know the truth. It needs to be laid out in raw terms so that when folks go to the polls, both here in the midterms and in 2024, they have the clear-eyed vision that they need to make a good decision. I'm sure that that's a goal for the Democrats. Enacting legislation to protect democracy, absolutely Congress's key function in convening a committee like this. Um, After 9-11, Congress took steps to protect the country. Here, Congress needs to take steps to protect the country. We need to have better guardrails. There's certainly work that they can do. I think that this committee's work and their report will be productive for that. And accounting for history I tend to think that that's very important as well. The historical record matters. An accurate, you know, record matters. I hope that there will still be a United States of America in another couple hundred years. And historians will look back at this difficult time in our history and they'll learn important lessons about how we got through this and moved forward. That's that's got to be the hope. You can't do that without a record. But the first issue that you flagged, Barb, was persuading DOJ to file charges. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that DOJ doesn't need persuasion, if not to file charges, at least to be thoroughly investigating all of the allegations that we're hearing here. 
you know, it is abundantly clear at, at this point. We are past the point where people can just say, oh, Donald Trump was such a novice. He didn't really understand what was going on. He didn't mean to do anything wrong. He was just a clumsy buffoon. That's just not the case. We've now seen significant evidence that he was potentially involved in a couple of different types of conspiracies to obstruct Congress, to interfere with the election. Those need to be investigated thoroughly. DOJ knows that. They don't need to be persuaded about that. And above all, I hope that everyone understands that DOJ will make its decision about whether to file charges without external persuasion. That, after all, was one of our major complaints about the Trump Justice Department, that they were unduly influenced by the White House. And it would be just as wrong for the Justice Department to be unduly influenced by Congress. DOJ needs to look at the facts. They need to look at the law. And then they need to run through the, ch the checklist of considerations in the federal principles of prosecution, which include issues that we've talked about on the podcast before, like whether there's a national interest in bringing the case, whether there are other possibilities for punishment other than a federal suit. And I suspect that that's the kind of calculus that will go on here. Um, you know, Barb, you and I have talked about the fact that when we teach um, criminal law, we talk a lot with our students about the two decisions prosecutors have to make. First, you have to decide, could you indict? Do you have the evidence? Is the law on your side? And then you have to think about, should you indict? Are you serving the most important principles implicated by our criminal justice system? Um, DOJ is obviously concerned, and I think rightfully so, about not becoming the kind of country where we routinely see prosecutions brought against our former our, against our former political leaders. No one wants us to be that country. But in this case, the evidence has simply progressed to the point where it's clear that Trump, that, that Trump crossed the Rubicon, that there was a point at which he was engaging in activity that no president should engage in. And so while I'm understanding of the difficult decision that has to be made here with institutional implications, I hope DOJ will go ahead and put together the evidence as best it can and decide to either indict or explain to the American people why it isn't, because I think if they don't, we're owed that explanation. Can I add something to that? Because I, I agree in general with you, but it depends on the definition of persuading DOJ, because maybe persuade is the wrong word, but helping them to make it easier for them to take this action. I think one of the consequences of the uh, Watergate hearings was that it built public support through the knowledge that was acquired in the hearings for our prosecutions of the top aides, for the resignation of Richard Nixon, for corrective legislation as well. But in terms of criminal culpability, when we filed the charges, people had seen the evidence through the Watergate hearings, and that made it more acceptable. So maybe in that regards, that's one of the legitimate purposes, rather than saying you're not doing your job and here's, here's the evidence, pay attention. Um, so I, I think there is something to be said for DOJ listening to this or the people listening to it and letting them know that they think that DOJ can and should act. 
That's an interesting perspective, Jill, and one I hadn't thought about before, because of course, I think the Justice Department has to do its own assessment as to the strength of the evidence. That's the legal inquiry here. Is there sufficient evidence to prove the case to obtain and sustain a conviction? But then there's also this other inquiry that Joyce mentioned, which is, is there a substantial federal interest here? And I think one of the things they have to think through is if, you know, what would the world look like if we do charge and what would the world look like if we don't charge? And on the due charge side, I think you have to think about civil unrest, civil war, uh, you know, huge public backlash. But if the country has reached a point where they believe that this happened and there would be an uproar if he weren't charged, maybe that changes the calculus about that substantial federal interest part. Hadn't thought about that. That's a good point. See, this is what concerns me, though. I think DOJ shouldn't get too far into looking at these sorts of considerations about what the public thinks. I think ultimately DOJ has to say, is the evidence there? Is the law there? Is this the kind of case that the Justice Department should be in the business of bringing? Because we don't want them to stray too far into public opinion, and I don't think that's what y'all are suggesting. I'm just sort of making that point, which I've heard floated. I think this whole national interest calculus looks something like this. If we don't indict a former president who engages in an insurrection, then who are we? And do we want to be that country? And I hope DOJ will say, we don't want to be that country. If, if he did this, we need to hold him accountable. Well, Jill, let me last, ask you one last question here. Um, and, and that is... Um, uh, I, you know, I agree with Joyce. I don't think we're going, we, we, we want the Justice Department to be independent. We want them to make these decisions based on their own assessment of the facts and the law and the substantial federal interest here. And I think one thing you're not going to see because of a respect for that independence is you know, tweets from Joe Biden uh, urging them to uh, uh, indict, you know, the way we did with Donald Trump. Like, yeah, why I haven't we charged Jim Comey yet or Andrew McCabe or whatever it was. And I think that would be, you know, sometimes referred to as um, improper uh, command um, instructions. You know, you're supposed to make uh, people make these decisions for themselves. So I think that would be improper. But there is a role, uh, you know, President Biden, no doubt, picked Merrick Garland to be his attorney general because he respected his judgment and his independence and thought he would restore public Mm -hmm. trust to the Justice Department. There is a role, though, that would remain for Joe Biden, right? If um, the Justice Department were to charge Donald Trump with a crime, the president still has a role here that echoes a bit with um, the Nixon case. Um, Do you think there's any chance that Merrick Garland could indict uh, President, former President Trump and Joe Biden would pardon him immediately before we had that long national nightmare continue? Exactly. Um, I have an evolving or an evolved viewpoint on this. Uh, during Watergate, I felt that there was no reason not to indict a sitting president when the evidence was as overwhelming of his guilt. And also because I worried about jury nullification when you indict all of the people who helped him, and he's the ringleader and he's not indicted. Uh, And because I just think it's right. It's the right thing to do when you have a guilty person, they have to be held accountable. And I didn't accept the arguments that it would interfere with his conduct of the presidency. Certainly, I thought the minute he resigned and was a private citizen, he should be indicted and urged Leon Jaworski that we should do that. As we debated it, Ford, who had become president, pardoned him. 
which ended it. Once you're pardoned, you're pardoned. There's nothing you can do. And I was angry. I was upset. I thought that was completely wrong and that he would never be held accountable. I then, many years later, maybe five, ten years ago, was on a panel with Gerald Ford's son and with Benton Becker, who was a young lawyer tasked by President Ford with delivering the offer of pardon to Richard Nixon. And in delivering it, he was told to show him a Supreme Court decision that says, in accepting a pardon, you are admitting your guilt of that crime. And I was very moved by the discussion, the, the, the facts presented by Benton Becker about Nixon's reaction and acceptance. Um, I now flash fast forward to right now and say, had we held Richard Nixon accountable by a criminal indictment, had he not been pardoned, had he gone to trial, maybe the rules would be clear. Maybe Donald Trump, even in today's world of no bipartisanship and Fox News, even he, without any moral compass, would have held back from doing what he did because he knew he could be held accountable. So I think, I would hope that President Biden would not stand in the way of a prosecution of a former president who is now a private citizen for crimes committed while he held the highest office in our land. So the bottom line is, no, I hope that Biden wouldn't do it. I hope that he will be held accountable. And that, of course, assumes that the evidence is clear, that all the elements of any particular crime are established and can be proven, and that I think this would be in the national interest. So that's my answer. Yeah, I'll, I agree with that. You know, in fact, a cynic might say, if Merrick Garland were to charge Donald Trump, and then Joe Biden were to swoop in with a pardon, some might say, well, now Trump never got a chance to defend himself. You know, it was a weak case. And so, you know, you kind of, you remember Janet Reno used to say um, memorably, um, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So you might as well just do the right thing. And and I'm, I'm confident that the Justice Department will do that. Yeah. And of course, he can refuse the pardon and defend himself. So that argument falls flat with me. He doesn't have to take it. If he wants to defend himself, if he thinks he can win, let him do it. Well, now it's time for our favorite part of the show, the part where we answer listener questions. We love these questions. Please keep sending your questions. Some are funny, some are irreverent, and we choose ones that we think um, ha will have the greatest interest um, to our listeners. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, please keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we can answer as many of your questions as we can. Um, and the first question we're going to ask today um, is from Lori, who asks, what would it take to get rid of the DOJ Office of Legal Counsel's memo against prosecuting a sitting president? And why do they seem reluctant to prosecute someone who is no longer a sitting president? Jill, you want to take that one? I certainly do. And it is a follow-on to our last discussion about the pardon of Ford and 
by Ford of Richard Nixon. All it would take is for someone in the Department of Justice to assign someone in the Office of Legal Counsel to look at the memo that exists to evaluate whether it still states good law. Frankly, I don't think it ever did. Um, but to look at the cases that are cited, to look at the policies behind it, and to make a decision as to whether they should retain it. If they don't want to retain it, they can simply announce a new policy that replaces it. And I don't see any reason to, no to not prosecute a former president. A former president is a citizen of the United States, is someone who is subject to all of our laws. And yes, you don't want fake prosecutions. And so when we talk about you don't you know, want to be a third world nation where we routinely prosecute former presidents based on no evidence, this assumes significant evidence. This assumes at the level of Watergate trial proof beyond a reasonable doubt that no jury could ever possibly reject for the president. And there is a higher standard, I believe, in indicting. But the answer is all it would take is for a review of that decision, uh, the, the policy. It's only a policy. It's not law. And the people who created it, the Department of Justice, can change it. All right. Our next question comes um, from uh, Allie, um, who asks, if a state were to pass a ban on all abortions, except in the instance of a rape or incest, how would the rape exception work? Would the woman have to prove that she was raped? And the answer is yes. It's why these exceptions are so unworkable. They sound good on paper, I think, but I think they could be really difficult to prove in practice. So imagine how this would play out. Um, you've got a state law that says it's a crime uh, to obtain an abortion or to perform an abortion. And so woman X and her doctor get charged with this crime. The defense would have to be, well, I was raped. Let me prove up that case. It may be quite a bit of time after. We know how difficult it is to prove these cases of sexual assault, that sometimes they come down to these whole, you know, he said, she said situations where uh, the perpetrator uses consent as a defense. And in fact, some of these statutes say that the rape must have been promptly reported. Uh, I don't know what it means to be prompt. You have to report it the next day, that day. Um, and there are many reasons we know that survivors of sexual assault do not immediately report when they have been uh, assaulted for all kinds of reasons, including privacy and having your life uh, put in the public view, cross-examined about everything from what you are wearing to your dating history. And so that defense would be um, borne by uh the, the woman involved here or the doctor, depending on how the statute is, is written, if it's an element to prove that the government has to prove that there was no rape, it would be their burden to prove there was no rape. Um, or it could fall on, depending on how it's written, on the survivor herself. But nonetheless, that's going to be an issue at the trial. And I, I just think in light of how difficult it is to prove cases of sexual assault, that very same challenge is going to arrive rise in all of these cases. So to simply shrug and say, well, we've got this exception for all rape and incest, it doesn't mean it's going to uh, be, be shown in every case and that it's going to be a valid defense in every case. So I think all of these things, th same about to save the life of the mother, um, very complicated. I've been talking to a number of medical professionals who say many women um, have detected 
cancers are detected during pregnancy because of the extensive exams you go through, cervical cancers, breast cancers. Is it necessary to abort the fetus to save the life of the mother? Mm, I don't know. Like the doctor's advice would be to get chemotherapy and radiation immediately. And so that would mean aborting the fetus to go through with that. But would would she die anyway? I don't know. Not sure. You know, maybe, probably. And so, you know, applying these rules in real life is far more challenging than it looks on paper. And it's why we typically defer to doctors and patients to make these decisions for themselves. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Kim will be back next week. Please go to our show notes right now to answer our short survey and help bring Hashtag Sisters in Law live to your town. We'll also post the link on our social media accounts. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. And please support this week's sponsors, Osea Malibu, HelloFresh, Noom, and Helix. You can find their links in the show notes along with our survey. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sistersinlaw. So did you guys feel like, like I did, like I wanted this, uh, the hearings to be like a, a Netflix episode, you know, where it, it, it'll just say like watch next, delete and watch next episode. And you can just, you know, click it and, and boom on you go, as opposed to having to wait, you know, like weeks to hear the next one until next week. Did you feel that Jill, where you wanted to do the Netflix thing? I definitely was wanting to do it. I mean, the audience is used to binge watching. It's I'm disappointed even in things like Gaslit where I have to wait week to week. I'm disappointed (laughs) that the CNN special um, Blueprint to a Scandal is two episodes on one Sunday, and now I have to wait till next Sunday for the second two episodes. But this definitely, I would have liked to have seen scheduled all together so that people don't lose. It's hard to build the momentum and keep audience attention when they're scattered around and when they haven't really announced an official schedule, I did get at one point there was a schedule announced that shows that there will be a hearing on Monday, that there will be one on Wednesday and Thursday, and then another one the following week, the 21st and 23rd. I don't know if those are still accurate, but that's what I had down. And, you know, I've set my schedule around being available to watch them. So I've turned down lots of things. So I wish they would get the calendar out there. And particularly in this situation where it's not so dependent on unexpected witnesses, they've interviewed a thousand people and they can schedule these to when those people are available who are going to testify live. So I'm not seeing the reason for this uh, non-transparent way of scheduling. And right, that does it. I'm sending a text message now to Liz Cheney to tell her that Jill Weinbanks needs to know <laughs> the schedule because uh, she needs to build her schedule around it and we uh-huh. need to work around that. Luckily for our listeners, Jill, they can binge listen to any past episodes of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law right now.